everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, where every other week we bring you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you to help you connect with where your passion meets the world's deep needs. This week on the podcast, we're talking with Reverend Carolyn Moore, founder and lead pastor of Mosaic United Methodist Church in Georgia. In this episode, we talk about the intricacies of faith, calling, and how she became secure in her identity in Christ as a woman, pastor, and artist. Carolyn shares her burning question, how do women plant churches? This question led her to her dissertation work and healing as she named specific barriers to women in ministry and discovered ways to overcome these obstacles to fulfill God's call on her life. Let's listen. So thank you so much, Carolyn, for making the time to talk this morning. I'm super excited. Uh, me too. <laughs> so I want to talk today. I was um, in the group with the Thriving in Ministry for Women, and I was there when you talked, and that's when I got the idea of like, oh, Carolyn would be great, because um, I was really interested in what you had to say. Um, so I want to talk to you about your dissertation and your work there, of course, but um, also kind of your own calling to ministry as a woman and then how that kind of led you into the research and um, kind of informed informed what you did. Okay. All right. So I was looking at your voices story this morning, just kind of looking back on it. And I saw that you were um, accepted Christ when you were 12 and then called to ministry at 13. And that was kind of, I mean, you said it was kind of unusual at the time. So kind of what were you thinking when you were like, I'm called to be a pastor? I was raised in a family that was uh, nominally Christian, culturally Christian, but um, most of us didn't go to church. I went with my mom, but there was certainly nothing there that kind of took. Mm -hmm. By mistake, I ended up going to a youth group when I was 11. I didn't realize I was too young there but they let me come and um that first night I um somebody said one of the counselors said something funny and it was the first time in my little uh, 11 year life that I realized that Christians could be funny and that was a value for me I think it's still a value for me joy is one of the big attractions of the faith to me mm -hmm. so that was a hook when I was 13, I, uh, nope, when I was 12, I came to Christ. And when I was 13, I was standing in a pulpit at Trinity on the Hill United Methodist Church in Augusta, Georgia, giving uh, a youth devotional for, an, you know, back when they had Sunday night services. And I can remember it like it was yesterday, standing there in that pulpit, reading my little 13-year-old handwriting about Jesus and hearing this voice, this audible mystical voice say this is where you belong and wow. in the moment was wondering if anybody else heard it I asked people afterward did you hear a voice and it was clearly only for me and so I, um, I took it I, I was just naive enough to think if God calls you you should do it I had no idea women didn't do that kind of thing I'm 50 yeah. so that would have been 43 years ago and 43 years ago in Augusta, Georgia, there were no women pastors. Yeah, yeah. Um, my mom, I didn't know it at the time, but my, it was a concern, especially for my mom, maybe for my dad. I'd, I'd, I'd never talked to him, but I talked to my mother. 
Mm -hmm. She was always discouraging me from that. Find something else to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and uh, toward the twelfth grade, um, my my mom set me up with an appointment with my pastor, and my pastor told me he thought I would be better suited for Christian education. And um, I was just naive enough to think that my pastor was hearing from God. So uh-huh. I I uh, went to a college that did had a Christian education major, and my life just fell apart. I didn't realize then what I know now, which is that your faith and your calling are intricately uh, connected. Uh-huh. I think it's possible to step away from your call or to, to miss your call and still be followed with Jesus. It isn't as if one disqualifies you from the other. But for me, certainly, my faith and my call were so uh, intricately interwoven that mm-hmm. I stepped away from one, I the other fell apart. Yeah, Maybe I found out was that my faith just didn't have roots all by itself. Mm-hmm. So for two years, I was pretty solidly. Um, I, I just walked on the wild side. For and yeah. uh, how did you find your way back to like to your calling and your faith and? Good question. So I was, I was, um, uh, I was a heavy drinker, and, uh, but but a friend of mine invited me to go to. They were, they were starting a brand new Bible study fellowship, BSF. Mm-hmm. She invited me to go, and that first night it was like, wow, okay, these people know rules. I get they they definitely get the rule thing down, and addicts don't have rules. We don't like rules. Yeah. We don't have boundaries. So I just felt I felt the boundaries in that group but was I was also sort of fascinated by it and very quickly as I began to study the word through BSF the the word of God just jumped off the page I would come home and I would just be on fire I would sit there at night at my kitchen table and I would be on fire my husband um he began going to to the BSF men's group because he he said I didn't want to get left behind that's awesome about two years in um, they, uh, they asked me to, uh, to lead a group and they told me, but if you lead, um, you're going to have to, um, quit drinking. And I just, I was like, well, I'll pray about it, which is Christianese for when hell freezes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but I, I, I heard the word of the voice of the Lord again. I heard him say, you know, um, here's your chance. Are you choosing beer or Jesus? Mm-hmm. And, um, I chose Jesus and this doesn't happen to many people. I, I lead a, a recovery group here at Mosaic. And so I know this doesn't happen often mm-hmm. Me, for whatever reason, for the purposes of God, I was delivered that night. I've not had a drink since I, I still have cravings. Mm-hmm. I know chemically that I'm, that I, that I'm addicted, but I, I have managed through the grace of God to stay sober since then that's awesome so that once my mind got sober my heart began to stir again and um i I really kind of went very quickly all the way into the deep end and one night i i we had a we had a house we had a daughter we had a marriage had a good job and i I just asked god one night is this all there is 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 there anything else and i heard that same voice again Say, I'm just waiting for you to see. I realized in that moment that from God's perspective, all the mistakes I'd made, all the problems I'd had as, as, a, as, a, as an addict, all, all of the doubts and the, even the, the outright denial of him that I had 
rest of my years away did not matter to Jesus. He was just patiently waiting. And I said yes that night. My husband was thrilled. Um, and we set on a course uh, that, that landed us at Asbury a year and a half later. Yeah. So you came then for your MDiv. Did both, were both of you students? No. My husband was a school teacher when we accepted this call, and he was genuinely thrilled. His, his response that night when I heard just say yes, I was kind of in fear and trembling, realizing if I didn't say yes, I might have, who knows where I would have ended up. So I said yes, and when the, my husband walked in the room just a few minutes later, and he said, uh, he asked me what I was doing, and I said, um, well, I think I just said yes to the call, and he just fell back on the bed and laughed and said, <laughs> so when do we go? <laughs> I love that. That's like such a huge gift and a confirmation. Oh, I know. And he's been my, I mean, ever since he's not like my husband. Could, we've just got a pretty egalitarian relationship, but he has often said, the one thing I won't let you do is quit. And he's been such a supporter and an encourager all the way through. So we've, his journey of finding a teaching position in Kentucky on our way up to Asbury was a whole other miracle story in itself and, a, and an avenue of healing for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was the student and I have, I mean, it, it, we've been very clear on this. It's taken, it took years for us to express it, but we're very clear that the call all the time, all along, the call to pastoral ministry was my call. Mm-hmm. And that was our family mission. It wasn't his call to lead and to lead a church. It was his call to lead in our family as I led a church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Yes. Yes. Very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so you came to Asbury, got mm-hmm. your degree. Then, then what happened next? While I was at Asbury, I sensed a, a very strong call, a deeper call to, um, to plant a, a new church. And this was, I was at Asbury 23 years ago, 24 years ago this year. And so back then we, we were right on the front edge of the whole church, uh, the church planting wave that mm-hmm. you sense has become such a big part of the, of the American culture. But, um, but I just sensed a very strong call to it. And it was more just a sense of having seen a model. I saw a model of a missional community um, called the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. I read a lot of books about it. Very interesting community, and it, and it lit a fire in me. And I sensed the Lord say that the United Methodist Church could, could benefit from that model. So while I was at Asbury, I studied more. I even did, They didn't have church planning classes at Asbury at the time. Now you've got a whole degree, but back then yeah. you were in class. <laughs> so I... Um, uh, sought out a professor who let me do an independent study in church planting. I sent a letter to my church development director in the North Carolina Conference asking if I could plant a church. And the response I got back was, we'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't know at the time was they just, their jury was out on women planting churches. They yeah. did not yeah. any successful uh, examples of women planting churches. And I didn't know that at the time. I just was sort of like all along. This has been God's giving me. Let's yeah. just. So, yeah, you were just all in to doing what God had called you to do. Exactly. So, um, 
So I, I ended up going, uh, getting an associate pastor's uh, role at Athens First United Methodist Church and walked in the first day. He said, okay, we want you to start a congregation across the street from the church in an old theater. And so they gave me three months to start. <laughs> wow. Well, I made every possible mistake, but the grill, the grace in those five years was that I was able to make all the mistakes you could possibly make in planting a church, but with training wheels on. You know, so my guaranteed. I had a copy machine in the big church. I had an office in the big church. I had I had people in the big church who were cheering me on. Um, they didn't can't say they really understood what we were doing, Mm -hmm. but trying it and I went from you know zero people to 150 by the time I left uh, wow. solidly. and I, I I can't say I built something healthy it didn't last um, it lasted about five years after me and then fell apart um, but but it was a real grace to have that chance in inside a supportive community to 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 try it that was prevenient grace on my life for this Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2003, I was, uh, the, the North Georgia conference invited me to plant this church in Evans. That's awesome. So you started doing that and it's going well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so were you like a satellite church of another church or an, an kind of an independent plant? I was what they call a parachute drop. Okay. So okay. I- I was, I was appointed by the North Georgia Conference to an area, and they just dropped me in and said, best of luck, see ya, and walked away. I had 18 months of, of salary, and that was it, and I had $25,000 in seed money, and that's what I was given by the North Georgia Conference. So wow. at the time, statistically, church plants were, um, had about a 70% failure rate. And a big part of that huge failure rate is a product of that um, parachute drop model. Mm-hmm. That, the, the, I think the church planning world has learned a lot in this. I've been here now since 2003, so what, 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the church planning world has learned that that's probably the least effective way to plant unless there is such a strong move of the Holy Spirit. It is just obvious to everybody. And that's certainly not the case with this. It was just a denominational initiative. But um, um, now I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it. When <laughs> 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 you learn that everything takes longer and costs more than you expect, even okay. if you're doing it in a in a healthy way, a mother daughter church model, or um, or or as a team. Um, a leadership team that has worked together for, for a, a long time to develop a rhythm, even when you're doing the healthy and, and the most successful models, everything takes longer and costs more than you expect. You have to be ready. For of course, so- yeah. Yeah. What was the planning experience like for you? The what experience? The planting experience like for you. So it was, um, it was lonely, especially in the early years. Yeah. Um, it was sobering, not just in the, you know, because I'm not saying that as I'm saying it was, uh, scales fell from my eyes, uh, in terms mm-hmm. of my denominational support. It was sobering to find out that, uh, 
money follows numbers. And when the numbers aren't there, uh, they're, they will leave you. They will leave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, um, it was also, um, it were such hard, hard years for me, but it was also a sanctifying experience. Mm, how so? Um, God, God, used, God used church planting to shake loose from me, and probably I'm sure I'm still carrying the feathers of it, but to shake loose from me the unholy ambitions. I had every intention of being the next female Andy Stanley. And wow. you know, missional community is, was what turned me, that was what lit my fire in seminary. But when I got in the church planting world, all of my ambitious, um, all of my ambitious uh, nerve endings just lit up, and I, I wanted, I wanted that. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to a thousand people, fifteen people getting saved every five minutes. I wanted, I wanted all the stuff. I wanted, I wanted all the stuff. Of and, course, yeah. And, and of course, I never said that out loud. Never, um, because I'm, I'm, I might be unspiritual, but I'm intelligent, and so. <laughs> Never said at least at least smart enough to know you know what you're not supposed to say out loud because so I just but I just know somewhere underneath here that was what I was really after mm-hmm. so what I what my unholy ambitions were leading me toward and what my call was were two different tracks missional community is what God created me for or mm-hmm. called and um, mega church ministry was not what I was equipped for gifted at or called to. But it's easy to like kind of combine those, like f- try to figure out a way to make those work, you know, together because they can be kind of similar and be like, I'm still doing what God wants me to do. Yeah, you can tell yourself all kind of lies. Yes. You know? And, um, and uh, aren't we just really good at that? You know, we just, are. <laughs> I, I pray. I know I am. <laughs> I prayed last night and God told me and fill in the blank, you know, and then it becomes just another unholy ambition. So, so over the years, just the just the consistent failure at achieving what I wanted became a sanctification for me, a, 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 a part of my sanctification, um, where I had to just shake off all the unholy ambitions. I had to shake off. Um, I had to grieve my limits, uh-huh. um, and I also had to get very, very. Uh, honest about my not just my internal leadership limits uh-huh. but what what I was limited to as a female church planter and then just because of culture and then and human fallenness and then how to live inside of that so that I could be successful in in the stream I've been given yeah how did you do that because it's because when you're saying that it's it's many things but I think of it being kind of you're comfortable in your own skin now with who you are how did you do that well the the probably the the biggest gift I was given is, is years and years ago I had a conversation it was just a serendipitous conversation um in Atlanta with a woman named Mary Kate Moore she's uh, she's a teacher she's a professor at Fuller or she was at the time and um, she'd planted two or three churches with teams, and they'd been pretty—they'd been successful by Foursquare standards. And um, 
And I found her online one day when I was looking one more time at how women plant churches, finding nothing out there, being so frustrated, just sure in my spirit that while my gender wasn't everything, I am certainly limited as a leader. My gender was part of it. And nobody had written anything. Nobody had vocabulary to affirm that in me. And so it, was made, it kind of made me crazy. Yeah, yeah, I, it would. I, I, I called her up one day, just out of the blue, total stranger. She happened to be in Atlanta. We met, and she said to me, it sounds like you have a burning question. And that is a great starting point for a doctor of ministry. And I went, oh, my dear woman, I am never going back to school. <laughs> that would be a good idea to you because you're an academic. I will not under any sort. I am positive right. this is not sending me back to school. So I try to answer my question every other possible frustrating dead end way. Mm-hmm. One day I, I walked into an Asbury alumni gathering at my annual conference, which I was actually helping to host, uh-huh. put out the cards for a brand new church planting cohort in the demon um, school. And I looked at it and I heard that same call of God. And this the call was, um, I delight in you. Let's do this together for fun. It was that was the that was the sense of that moment. It was what just an invitation. Yeah, you don't have to go all the way across the country. I just this is your Asbury's my tribe, uh-huh. and it's the place that has formed me over has never let go of me over twenty three years of a relationship with this wonderful institution. Never let go of me. And, and I heard, just heard the Lord say, just, I delight in you. Let's do this together for fun. So I called up whoever was leading it at the time and said, all right, here's my burning question. How do women uh, lead past the natural barriers so they can plant churches effectively? Mm-hmm. And um, if you'll let me answer that question, that's my question. If you'll let me answer that question in the DMAN program, then I'll sign up. And he was like, well, let me send you the paperwork. <laughs> I was going to say, they were probably super excited that you had your dissertation at the beginning. Nobody's written it. And so, um, so that I went, I, you know, not everybody goes into a demon quite the way I did, but I went with, with my burning question, well-defined, lived out as a question for a lot of years. Uh-huh. I was ready. I was ready. Uh-huh. That program was life-giving for me. It, 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 I found more peace. I found more of my own sense of identity, my own sense of worth. I, I came, what I, what I found was there are natural barriers that women face. Yeah, yeah. There are barriers that most people don't verbalize because they don't know it even consciously. Mm-hmm. Because it's just kind of normal, like in your world. Right, you know? right. And that I just, what I, the best part of all to me was by, by verbalizing them, that was enough for me. Just yeah. to verbalize them was enough. And I don't, if I know them, if, then, then I can enter any room non-defensively, non-angrily, uh, happy to be there and let people accept whatever part they can accept. And, um, and I can also speak into the lives of women who are ready to take on the mantle of serious spiritual leadership. Mm-hmm. I'm not 
not really cut out so much for not cut out for people who just want to do Christian recreation. You know, I just want to, let's just sit around and talk about ourselves all day. I'm not really cut out for that, uh -huh. but I cut out for women who are ready to, uh, to take on the mantle of spiritual. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I can say to them, let's, we're, I'm not here for whiners. I'm not here for angry women. I'm here for women who are, who are ready to take on the mantle and who are ready to do the big grown up work of, uh, of figuring out what your personal barriers are so you can lead past them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not stating them to your congregation, not stating them to whatever people you're leading, but working from that place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What barriers in your research, what did you discover? And then I want to move on and talk about kind of like discovering them as part of your healing process. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I narrowed them to six um, basic barriers. The theological barrier, of course, we're all aware of, and that's kind of flamed back up here in recent days. Yes. Like Beth's, Beth Moore's conversations with the SBC. So, the, but the theological barrier is obvious. 50% of the Christian world globally does not accept the role of women in spiritual leadership over a church. Even if, even if, uh, even if the denomination will allow you to speak from the pulpit, they are not. Uh, there, there are denominations still that don't affirm the, the role of women as a church leader. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, um, so that means that as a church planter, when I am gathering leaders to plant a church, I have half of a pond to fish from. Yeah. Where a man can fish from the whole pond, I can. I've got my pond's half the size. Yep. Um, the second one is the perception barrier, and that works in two different directions. Uh, and I, I believe it comes, the perception of women as leaders is an effect of human fallenness. Uh -huh. So this is one and two. God gave us a, a, a model of partnership that was parallel, M men and women in partnership. Yeah as they steward the earth. Genesis 3 made a hierarchy out of a partnership. So yeah. somebody was left on the bottom side of that hierarchy and it's women. And ever since women have always felt themselves sort of jumping back, you know, we, we, in any, in any um, leadership situation, we sort of feel ourselves jumping up there to, yeah. get, to get just to the starting block. Feeling our, like yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, you feel like you have to work twice as hard to just even be good enough, you know, to be noticed. At least I felt that way sometimes. Right. Right. And so you walk into a room and you, you hear it from women often. We've learned how to apologize our way into a room. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't actually noticed that. It was a man who told me that that's what he notices when women walk into a room. The first thing out of our mouths so often is, I'm sorry. Yep. You never hear a guy walk into a room and say he's sorry. No, they don't apologize for anything. I mean, they do, but I mean, like not for being somewhere. Right. We've just, it's been ingrained into us. So there's two things on as far as how others perceive us. Uh, one part of how others perceive us is uh, an assertive woman, a woman who's naturally gifted for leadership will often be seen as too aggressive. Uh, so not as well liked. Mm -hmm. If we take on a more passive or feminine persona as a leader, we're not as well respected. Uh -huh. How we're perceived by others is an issue. And then, because leadership, for many people, leadership just isn't packaged in a woman's body. So they struggle to, to, to make sense of it 
uh, cognitively. And that then kind of creates this thing in us where because I do feel like I'm apologizing my way into a room because I don't know how people feel about me in any room I walk into, I often find myself uh, struggling with my own self-perceptions. Should I be here? Questioning my role as a leader, questioning whether did I hear from God right? So when you're constantly doing the self-questioning, it's really hard to get past yourself (laughs) and simply be in a room. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the best things anybody ever told me was, you know, just if you're in a room, you're there because somebody invited you and they'll let you know when you're not welcome anymore. And, you know, we know that's true. <laughs> well, yes, we do. <laughs> um, so the third p- barrier is resources. I said earlier that um, money follows numbers. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally understand when a denomination, when a, when a, an annual conference office, uh, when a network only has so many dollars to, to, to spend on new church development. And when, when some churches or some leaders are just exploding, you, you want to fuel the success. You want to yeah. make yeah. lives matter. Souls matter. 3000 souls coming to Jesus and coming to worship on Sunday is obviously holds a kind of fruit that a church with 200 people in it doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I, I totally get it, but the fact is um, that does limit uh, the, the the amount of resources available to women because at this point, and I would say this holds true across denominational lines from my study, certainly within the United Methodist circles, that um, there just not there are no churches planted by women that have grown to be. I mean, at the largest ones are somewhere around 500 members. That's the large. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I may be missing one, but uh, (laughs) listeners, if you know that one, that is the exception. I need you to hear me. That's the exception, not the rule. Right, right. For the most part, uh, uh, women, female pastor church plants are hovering um, at just, you know, low low numbers. so, so that also means we don't have the resources of coaching and the resources sources of training because people who are professional coaches, professional trainings, trainers are, are going where the people are. And right. something less than 3% of church planters are women. I'm not talking about pastors. Something wow. 3% of planters are women. Wow. Yeah. Then there's the biological barrier. And that's one that women struggle with across the board or have to wrestle with in terms of their own call. And that is what's going to lead in my life. Uh-huh. Is my career going to lead or is my family life and my time to be, to, for pregnancy, um, time kind of out of the pipeline because I am either pregnant or having a child or at home and on family leave or taking a season away yeah. from, from my uh, vocation in order to to raise my child to school age yeah. mm-hmm. that happens on the on the young end and then on the middle age end is um, just what happens to us biologically um, and how we handle that and how how that uh, does that are we well suited temperamentally for for uh, leadership and those aren't even things guys can say out loud but I'm a middle aged woman I guess. <laughs> Right, we can talk about those things. <laughs> um, and then, and and it's true too. You know, at at, at, at 50, uh, 50, 55, 60 years old, we, we begin to think: Is this 
do, do I really want to just begin here? You know, do I, is mm-hmm. this start and a whole new thing? And if so, what's that going to look like in terms of my husband's retirement, in terms of grandparenting and all those other right. things at life? So the biological barrier is there for, for both genders, sure. But, but I think there's a special there's a special case you could make for women there. And then there's the pastoral care barrier. This is an interesting one. Harry Newhoff talks about this in a blog post he, he gave several years ago when he talked about how pastoral care kills churches. If pastoral care is centered on the pastor, and a pastor can only effectively pastor about 150 people. And you have naturally limited the size of your church, uh-huh. focusing all the pastoral care needs on one person. Combine that uh, sort of human tendency with a a woman's more natural tendency toward nurturing. And now you have a pressure that you have to push through and a a barrier you have to break through with your congregation in order to grow your church. Uh People are looking to the mother figure in the house to be uh, to be the nurturer and the caregiver for everyone, and if you say no, I'm simply not going to do that. Well, now you have to deal with everybody's ire and wait. What I thought you were going to be my mom. No, I'm not yes. Um, and and then and developing being kind of uh, ruthless and developing a pastoral care network so everybody isn't continuing to come to you. Uh, so that's a, because we are naturally gifted as nurturers. Yeah. We have to, we have, we re, that's a personal and corporate barrier we have to press through. Mm-hmm. So, how, um, yes. How are naming these barriers healing for you? Uh, for me, it was, it was just, I, I could look at every single barrier and say, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. All of these things. Are, all of these things are actively working beneath the surface in my ministry, and some, you know, some in some seasons, some are more important than others. Early in my uh, life as a church planter, the resources were so critical, and I didn't have them. Okay. Now, I, keep your money. I, don't, I you know, <laughs> what's really active in my life right now is is. Um, just the perception, um, other people's perception of women and being able to stand as I am as a strong female leader and just let the chips fall where they will. Um, it's a constant pressure against the pastoral care tendency mm-hmm. that I, I love taking care of people and listening and being in that room with somebody who needs me, but pushing against that tendency in myself so that I can keep pushing pastoral care to the small groups. Mm-hmm. Really the strategic plan, really working the systems, knowing what I know about both my tendencies and other people's tendencies. Mm-hmm. So just having a way forward, having vocabulary for it, it was so healing. And I'll tell you the one night that meant more than any other night in my demon research was the night I discovered the survey, the, the somebody done some, you know, some psychologist somewhere discovered that when the people around you will not affirm what you know to be true, you feel crazy. And well, that was, I had church <laughs> in my home office that night, like 1130. And I just went, <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. I feel crazy because everybody around me is saying, ah, you're fine. You're doing great. And I'm saying, don't you see? 
I'm working twice the hours as my male counterparts. I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard. I can't, I'm, I know not all of it is, is, you know, I know some of it is my own fault because I have leadership limitations, but not all of it is my fault. And I just want somebody to affirm that. And the statistics, the studies, the, what I find in the business, no book has been written inside the church, but what I found in the business world, a Harvard business uh, school has done study after study after study. What I found in the educational world was so affirming for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's enough. Now I know. You know, I don't need anybody else. I just had to know for myself I wasn't crazy. Yeah, yeah, and that's important. Just to yeah. like have have knowledge and vocabulary to be like, yeah, this is how it. This is how it is. I haven't been just imagining everything that's been going on. Yeah, yeah. We live in a fallen world. Yeah. And this, everybody's got their thing. Guys have their thing, I, you know, and they have their stuff that they need to work through. But this was mine. And to yeah. say, find out at the end of the day, these these barriers will always be here as long as we are on this side of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. And I can take that and that's enough for me. And now I can start working. And in every conversation and every community I create, I can I can begin pouring in exposing greatness in women, exposing kingdom greatness in people by letting them affirm my leadership. And that's enough. Yeah. 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 One of the barriers you mentioned was the perception barrier. And one of the ways when we had talked earlier, you said to overcome that was to be secure in your identity in Christ. How, I mean, I think it's probably a lifelong process, but how did you start being more secure in your own identity. I worked with a counselor a few years ago on, and, and he gave me the, it's just so simple. Of course, the, the way God is first introduced to us relationally in the scripture, I mean, he's, he's introduced in the very first verse of, of Genesis, but his, his, the first relationship we really see after Adam and Eve is the, 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 the one that's described over chapters and chapters is with Moses. Mm-hmm. And he first presents himself to Moses as I am, I am. Mm-hmm. This is such a beautiful name that evokes identity. So I had this counselor say, that if we're made in the image of God, our, our task is to, dis- to discover in ourselves our I am. <laughs> so how does, mm-hmm. what, what is my I am? And to get at that, he had me write, I mean, his, his, his homework assignment was to write 2,000 I am statements. Wow. I never got to 2,000, but I got over 1,000. And, um, and, and so, you know, the first 10 or 15 are your really, I am a mother, I am a wife, I am a pastor, I am a church planner, those things. Uh-huh. Then after about 50 or so, after you finish with your PR ones, you know, the ones you expect to be published, then you kind of get yourself. And somewhere around two or 300, I really started getting very serious about, you know, I, I, am, I, am, I am one who struggles uh, with my husband's depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so does he, of course. I, I, I am, one day, I, in a particularly bad day, I wrote, um, I, am, uh, I am distrustful of God. Mm-hmm. Writing, it wasn't a, like, that wasn't a deal breaker for me in any way, but just writing it out loud. Really, I began to deal with my own trust issues across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a mixed bag. I am, I'm equal parts good and, and 
fallen. Um, the day I wrote, I am an artist. Mm. That was a freedom day for me. Mm-hmm. How that, so? I, I really began to understand I, I'm not the un-anti-Stanley Stan, uh, pastor because I'm just not capable. I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not the mega church pastor because I'm an artist. I create things that are unique and I create models. I create things people can look at that they can say, okay, that's a model of missional community, spirit filled missional Wesleyan community that I could get behind mm-hmm. and, and maybe even um, draw some things from that. And, um, and, and I'm also an artist in the way that I, uh, in, in my speaking and in my writing, just seeing my writing as artistry instead of, instead of just shoving information out into the world. That was so freeing for me. I bet. When I realized that in any room, when I present in a room, I'm not presenting as a woman, I'm presenting as an artist. And if I feel different in this room, it's not because people don't appreciate my gender. It's because I am a unique person in this room. Mm-hmm. And maybe everybody in the room is, but this is how I present. I present as someone with a unique viewpoint, as someone who was probably not going to do it like everybody else, who is probably going to have more the model and not the, and not the explosive um, midstream community i am i am going to present as a, a more prophetic voice when i kind of found those words that work for me inside my artist uh thing it just it just changed everything i found so much peace i found joy um, i found a way to posture myself and mm-hmm. uh, and i found i i turned around and looked at my church and all of a sudden i saw my church as one big piece of art and it's like oh <laughs> I love this place. I stopped seeing all the things that it is not and started seeing all the things that it is. Yeah. And so my last couple of years here have just been so life-giving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that discovery fits with the title of your church, Mosaic, which was already in place. Oh, my gosh. I am not the brightest bulb in the box. So my church is called Mosaic. My blog is called Art of Holiness. And I am just now getting <laughs> as an artist <laughs> I love that I love it though like that's great. I love too what you were saying earlier about um you don't want like to to foster anger or like whining and angry women and I love because it's easy to get in that place Oh yeah, put a group of women in a room together, and we can go there very quickly. It's it's a it's a it's a comfort zone for us to present as victims or to present as angry, but that's not God's best. Yeah, we just assign to the extent. I, now I'm not talking about not being honest. I'm not talking about not being vulnerable. That's of not of course. Yeah, but but when we find ourselves constantly externalizing the blame. Mm-hmm. Someone else's fault. I'm the victim, or it's someone else's fault. They did me wrong, and I'm angry, or it's someone else's fault. They don't know me. When I'm constantly externalizing the blame, that is a that's a real sign that I'm I'm not. I've got healing to do. Yeah, so the world does not need you to present as someone who is desperate to be known. The world needs you to present as someone who is known by Jesus 
who finds your fulfillment from the vertical identity and who now can be completely other focused. That's what the world is desperate for. Absolutely. And it's not like that we can't talk about injustices that have been done, but to move past them. Right. How do, how do we start? How do we talk about the inequities without being angry? How do we talk about inequities without and, and, and how, one of the cool things, I don't think I could have done this any sooner than I've done it because I was one of those angry, victimized women But in, in my early years as a, as a pastor. But um, now, with, uh, equipped with the kind of things that I've learned from my doctor of ministry, I've been in rooms that are men and women and even rooms that were all men where I've taught these, these uh, barriers uh, to ministry for women and, and to plan things specifically. And it's so cool to see guys go, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've been scared to death to say that out loud. <laughs> you know, and oh, my gosh, yeah. I never thought of it. I never even thought of it. I had a guy just last week walk up to me. It was uh, between sessions at something totally unrelated. And he said, everything you told me about how you dress, I've been looking at how other women dress. And, oh, my gosh, I get what you're saying now. Um, I totally understand what I need to be coaching, you know, as I'm coaching the women pastors. Mm-hmm. Team, I totally get how I can coach them, and it's just really—it's um, just been so freeing for me. Yeah. with men, and I bet really exciting to see how your dissertation and your work is making a difference—not just in your life, but in other people's lives too. Right, one more way we can help the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, what resources are you offering now, or like, what do you want to continue to do with your dissertation? Um, I. I desperately need to um write the book <laughs> <laughs> yes Brian Collier, i hear your voice in my head right now saying write the book i told you to write the book because I, I i know that what i have is uh it can is a can be a contribution to the body of christ you should totally write the book because i read your dissertation you should i mean and it was great you but you should write the book like it will be amazing um i just have to i just have to get myself I just have to find the space and time to do that. And so that's one way that I'm using it. Um, I'm, I don't really go out and seek opportunities, but I want to make myself available to anybody who, any, anybody, whether it's a staff team um, or it's, if it's a, a district meeting or a conference thing or just a workshop inside of a conference, I just think there's a lot there for, for, for men and women that just an a non-threatening place to learn the language mm-hmm. and thinking about how to how to make the most of ministry for women, whether you are a woman or are or are coaching women into leadership. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. things I want to I want to help men give I want to give permission I want to give permission to men to mentor and coach women, um, and and so that's important. part of what I part of one of the the strategies around the barriers is to find the coach that works for you. Don't look for gender. Look for, mm-hmm. look for affinity. Mm-hmm. Have enough healing in yourself um, that you can conduct yourself professionally, no matter what the relationship, yeah. no matter who that coach is. So I want to give um, men and women that freedom. Um, and, and, and I think I just want to continue uh, being on the receiving end of uh, all those one-to-one conversations with women who say, you know, I've really struggled and I need someone I can talk to. And to be able to say to them, I hear your struggle. I totally hear it. Now, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Uh, because uh, God has a call in your life. 
And um, that call is, is that part of that call is uh, after you've done everything you can do, stand, you know, but yeah. also after you've done all you can do, you need to stand and you need to be, the, the, and, and Paul also says, grow up in every way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that's all my questions for the podcast, unless there's anything else that we haven't touched on that you, that's burning on your heart. Nope. That's good. Okay. I, oh, I want to say one other thing. Um, this whole, um, as, as I have experienced more freedom in ministry, my church has, it has, it's been amazing actually to watch the ripple effect. My church has experienced more freedom in ministry. My church has experienced more freedom from me. They see me now. Um, just, I'm much less controlling. I am much less, uh, uh, much less emotional. <laughs> this is moody. Maybe that's the better way to say it. I'm just less moody. Um, I, I've, I have experienced more joy in this season of my life than in any other season. And consequently, we have seen the spirit move at Mosaic in ways we've, we've not seen until now. It's been really amazing to watch. And so now um, I've kind of moved on past, uh, you know, Maybe my question about women answered, and the big question for me now is uh, how, do, how do Wesleyans embrace supernatural ministry? Oh, yeah. Know who we are. Um, we don't spend the rest of our lives telling everybody who we are. Now that we know who we are, we spend the rest of our lives um, figuring out how to expose the kingdom of God. Yeah. And, that know, is fascinating. So how do, you, how do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> First, know who you are in Christ. Uh, um, because when you know who you are, you experience so much more freedom to explore all the beauty and the joy and the art that is in the creative spirit that is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you can let people be who they are inside your community and they can, they can present in all the ways people present themselves without some need to control it. And that has just been so freeing for us. And, and now you, because you're not focused on yourself anymore, now you can lay hands on other people and, and, and help them to get set free. And that's been my thing with folks at Mosaic. I said, just, just as Wesleyans, Let's just start practicing what we know to be true. Luke 9 tells us, cast out demons, cure diseases, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. So let's just start laying out hands on people and casting out demons and, and calling out the, uh, the sickness and, the, and, and calling the Holy Spirit to cure people. And if it never happens, at least, at the very least, we can stand in front of Jesus and say we've been faithful. Mm -hmm. um, what we're noticing is that as we... Just give ourselves permission to do that. God is creating real miracles in our midst, and it's been so fun to watch. And we're not trying to create, a, you know, some the culture of some other tribe. We're just trying to be true to what it means to be a Wesleyan, which is mm -hmm. classical Christianity. And classical, the heart of classical Christianity is Jesus' commission on those first followers in Luke 9. Cast out demons, cure, take power, take the power and authority given to you. That's it. That's it for a woman. Take the authority given to you to go out there and cast out demons, cure disease, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. That's amazing. There was one thing I did want to ask you. You were talking earlier about hearing the voice of God, especially like in pivotal moments for you. Is there are, are there ways that we can hear the voice of God and know that we're hearing the voice of God? 
That's a great question. Um, and I think the answer for me, all I can, because you know, God is mystery. And every time I think I haven't figured out, he doesn't change. I just realize how stupid I am. <laughs> but, but the answer for me has been space and time. I do not give space and time to listening. I won't begin to recognize how he speaks to me. And how he speaks to me will be different than how he speaks to you. Mm-hmm. I tend to have these very mystical moments where the, where the sentence is clear, simple, and concise, and it comes to me almost like clouds parting in my brain. Um, Bob Tuttle says, it, when, you, when what you hear is smarter than what you could have said yourself, you know it's God. Um, and that there are moments where I've heard, this is where you belong. Just say yes. Um, I want to delight in you. Let's do this together for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, wake the people sitting in the pews. Create conversations and communities that expose the kingdom. Those are, those are, those are lines God has given me over the years that um, I, can, I can say, I know that was God-inspired, if not God-breathed. God spoken, you know, uh-huh. um, and and so he knows he can get me in one sentence. If he can get, <laughs> he must have. He probably invented Twitter because of me. I I my lose focus after about 144 characters. But um, but if he can get me in one sentence, and if, if he can get me with enough space and clarity to hear, it will. I will receive it. He also speaks to me in dreams, and uh, the dreams that I know are from him are usually um, symbolic in nature and they're very vivid and they stay with me. Mm. And if they with me past a morning after I've dreamed it, I know that's probably God trying to speak to me. And maybe he speaks to me in dreams because I just don't give him enough space and time during the day. But um, I'm learning at this stage in my life that space and time, uh, it's the meeting I have with God before the meeting when I get clarity about the purpose of the meeting. It's the meeting I have with God before worship, when I get clarity about the purpose of worship. It's the meeting I have with God before I actually enter the process of decision-making, when I get clarity about the question I really want to ask or really want. Those things have become for me really, um, I, I, think, I think what I can say at this point in my life is I'm very aware that God will speak when I give him space and time. Mm. Yeah. And that for me is different than Sabbath. Um, sitting around drumming my fingers is not good for me. Um, I just, I just fancy and miserable. For me, it's for me, the discernment and the, uh, the voice of God comes in the midst of, of, of very um, interactive wrestling or very interactive, um, intentional conversation. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you what your meetings with God look like. Cause when I think of meetings with God, I think it's like, and it may be like this long drawn out time. And, and for me, cause I'm trying to implement this in my own life, like meeting with God. And I'm like, well, I don't want to get up at four in the morning. Like I will not be awake to meet with God for an hour or two hours at this time of day. It's just not going to happen. So yeah. what are these meetings? And I realize they're different for every person, but what yeah. are they? So for me, it is about an hour every morning. I get up and go to the gym first and then I come home. So I'm 
then I eat, and then I meet with God. Now I'm awake enough. Okay. Um, but it's about an hour every morning for me. Mm-hmm. And it, I've noticed that it takes about 20 minutes for my brain to calm down enough to hear. Um, I can't. I take a notebook, my Bible, and I set a timer on my phone and then turn it over because I am so easily distracted. I think the world is. That's not a me thing. That's an us thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can, if uh, the scripture is where is what grounds me. And um, so I read about four chapters every day. And, and if I will just give myself to that, he will show up. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the daily working out my salvation. But mm-hmm. in terms of speaking over specific events or moments or decisions or a new direction or new season, it really is for me, it's just, it's taken a walk in the middle of the day. Um, uh, it's, it's, I just, I don't do well sitting still, but I do really well if I'll move my body mm-hmm. and then my brain to God. So a lot of times what I do is I just, I just, I'll just go to the park and I'll take a walk and, mm-hmm. um, and I'll, or, or, or sometimes I can just write, uh, one of my practices is I write across the top of the page the question that I have and I write it in blue. Mm-hmm. I pick up my red pen and everything I hear, I write in red. I don't worry about whether it's God or just me or, you know, wishful thinking. I just write everything I hear. And I can go back in a day or two and I can see which parts, with a little bit of time and distance, I can see which parts are God or likely God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I always hear from him. Um, but I can see which parts, yeah, that's probably, that's probably a word right here in this part. That's probably Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for like talking to me today and just sharing. So as we wrap it up, we have three questions that we ask everybody on our podcast. And so it's called the thrive podcast. So the first question kind of relates to that. What is one practice spiritual or otherwise that is helping you thrive right now? Right now, uh, the, the spiritual practice today is fasting. I'm fasting together with my community. Everybody takes a day and, um, there's about 80 of us working it together. And this community fasting is a different thing for me. It's usually been a very solitary practice, but it's been really cool to fast together with the community. I have my day, everybody else has got there. Some of us are on the same day and we kind of talk to each other if we know we're all fasting on the same day. But uh, I've been more intentional because of the accountability of community mm-hmm. and it's been a great, great practice for me. I have found, I found myself letting go of so many things that I thought belonged to me only because I know 80 other people are praying with me over oh, the years we yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, the community fasting, very cool. Yeah, oh, cool. What are what are you reading right now? Hmm. I just finished. Oh, I've got so I got so many good books right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have. So ninety. Uh, sorry, nine lies about work was a great read for me. Okay. Uh, book about just work and the kind of practices built and 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 the. The underlying concept is after 20 years of research, this, uh, this practice found, this, this kind of group of people found that teams are the bottom line. And so these nine lines, lies about work are all related to how teams work together. It's been a really good book for me. I really appreciate that book. A War of Loves is by David Bennett, uh, a celibate 
gay Christian, exceptional, exceptionally well-written, bright, uh, brilliant guy. Uh, just a great book. Um, those are two I just finished. I'd have to look at my list to see what else is on. A Spiritual Friendship by Wesley. No, uh, I saw the Wesley Hill podcast on spiritual friendship. Oh, yeah. I've just gotten, I can't get a name of it, but a really great book as well. Uh, spiritual Friendship is another one that we as a community have talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Truly enter into deep, intimate friendships and community as a way of we have a lot of single people in my church, but as a way of feeding, caring for, loving on, providing meaningful relationship to our uh, to single adults. Mm-hmm. What, is like? what is friendship look like? Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. What is one thing that's still on your bucket list? I uh, crazy that I've been a lot of places in the world and I have not yet been to London. <laughs> oh yes. I think I'm ready to go to London, see the new room. I really want to see the new room, uh, see that window firsthand. I'd really like to go to Scotland. Um, I'd really like to go to Ireland. So that whole part of the world has is yet to be explored, and that's something I'd I'd really like to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I hope you get to do that soon. Thank you. Thank so, you. well, thank you again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you again, Carolyn. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I get to talk to you every once in a while. I always enjoy the opportunity to spend time with you. So thank you. Hey y'all. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Reverend Carolyn Moore. Just so enjoyed this conversation with Carolyn and so grateful for her time and her ministry and for her sharing of her story to encourage me and I hope you. In our next podcast episode, Donna Covington, Vice President of Formation at Asbury Seminary, joins me for a conversation. We talk about the formation journey students begin during their time at Asbury Seminary, but also Donna's personal story of formation, healing, and hope. New podcast episodes release every other week, and you won't want to miss out. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. And of course, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.